study your word. We thank you that you do not leave us ignorance about uh, the end times of the things yet still to come. We might not get the entire blueprint detail of every single thing that's going to happen in the future, but we get the broad strokes and we really get the important moments, the things that we really need to uh, understand and be prepared for. And so I pray that uh, we would take these words in your words to heart and we'd be prepared for these times, not from a place of fear, but a place of hopeful expectation. And I pray this, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. And hello to Michael. You came in at just the right time, Michael. Okay, so I know we're going to kind of touch on some of these things last week. I'm just going to re-emphasize them. Hopefully everybody listened to last week's Bible study because we are in the middle of Matthew 24. So if you didn't, you might be a little lost, but we'll find you along the way, hopefully. Um, let me just, how do I put this? Matthew 24 is probably one of the more difficult chapters in Scripture to interpret. Okay, anytime you're dealing with the genre of literature known as apocalyptic literature, which is basically the entire book of Revelation, chapters like Matthew 24 and elsewhere, both in the New and Old Testament, things get complicated. Um, especially when you're dealing with, as I'm going to argue tonight, we're looking at a sort of double fulfillment of prophecy going on here. What's clearly in view in Matthew 24 is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the uh, horrible times that preceded it. But there's also obviously something futuristic going on here, um, something that will happen in the future, which is elaborated elsewhere in Scripture, the last days, particularly Revelation, particularly passages like Daniel 9 through 11, and other places in Scripture that we've covered. And so part of the difficulty of this chapter is parsing these things out. Now, uh, tonight, I, I use some commentaries when I prepare my studies. Most of the time, the way, and Rabbi Glenn is this way too, I think, um, I tend to write my own sort of commentary, right? I analyze scripture, look at the Hebrew or the Greek, think about it, pray about it, put my thoughts down, and then basically fact check myself against people that I think are a little bit smarter than me and see where their arguments are and disagree. Um, when you're dealing with a chapter like Matthew 24, um, in my opinion, it's good to have a good commentary or two next to you, um, especially when you're dealing with the Greek, as we will be tonight, if you are not an expert in it. So two commentaries I like, and these are not exhaustive on the book of Matthew, and particularly Matthew 24, but two commentaries I like is I'm a big fan of D.A. Carson. Uh, I don't agree with everything he writes, uh, but in general, in broad strokes, I appreciate his approach to theology. And so the expositor's commentary, particularly the revised one in 2010 that he published on the book of Matthew, phenomenal. And I'm also a big fan of Craig S. Keener. I also disagree with him in many places. Um, but uh, Dr. Keener is really good at bringing in sort of extra biblical materials, like what was sort of the Jewish thoughts on these topics and what was kind of going on in the midst of Scripture being written. And so uh, he wrote the social rhetorical commentary on Matthew, uh, which overall is a good set of commentaries, a little bit different than most other ones. And so those were sort of the two I had beside me, uh, each of them having their own perspective on it. So I'll be referencing Keener and Carson uh, multiple times tonight, and so I just want you to know where I pull my sources from uh, so you can uh, hopefully have those resources available for yourself if you so choose. All right, so why is Matthew 24 hard to understand? I kind of alluded to it. But uh, D.A. Carson kind of gives like six different reasons 
in the prelude to this chapter in his commentary. So as I said before, we're dealing with Jewish apocalyptic literature with prophecy, which makes it complex and hard to understand. Um, there's a lot of allegory and typology in prophecy, particularly in this genre. So the whole literal sex sense makes sense, seek no other sense that we like to use here at Shema. Really great for narrative in other places. Gets a bit more complicated when you're talking about dragons in the sky in Revelation and days and weeks in Daniel. And here are some of the things we'll be talking about, including fig trees in Matthew 24. Also, there's numerous Old Testament references. So we have to figure out how Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using the Old Testament in the New Testament. I'm a big fan of also edited by D.A. Carson and G.K. Beale, commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament for things like that. The other big thing, and this is particularly for chapter 24, is what has already occurred or is still to occur, and is there a double fulfillment or some sort of like both and going on here in certain verses? Specifically also in Matthew 24, 34, which if we get to tonight, is how do we understand the word, the, the nearness or how imminent Messiah's return is? Uh, Matthew 34, uh, 24, 34 in particular has a lot of different interpretations attached to it. Also, as we'll be starting off today in 15, the use of abomination that causes devastation. How is Matthew employing that through the Holy Spirit here in this passage? What does that mean? Again, Lots of interpretations. But really what makes, in my opinion, this the, the, hardest, uh, the, the hardest aspect of this chapter to really parse out is really just how each section relates to itself, right? So what is the flow of thought going from verses 1 in Matthew 24 all the way through the end of the chapter? And as Rabbi Glenn pointed out last week, this sort of section really begins in the previous chapter of Matthew as well. And so... What's in view of the temple? What's coming later? How do these verses relate to each other? You know, where is the movement of thought happening here? And that really, how you kind of deal with that will sort of inform how you deal with a lot of other issues, right? Abomination that causes devastation. We'll be doing a little study on that tonight, right? Kind of easy to research with Bible software or dictionaries. You can look up that term and do it. But the sort of the breaking up of the chapter is, such, is a little bit more complex or nebulous. Does that make sense? So in your own studies and as you listen to other people, because again, this is a very popular chapter of scripture to expound upon, right? People do a lot of bad things with this chapter to justify really bad um, uh, uses of prophecy. Everybody, Glenn says the camera's being a little wonky. So I am going to pause for one moment, and I'm just going to zoom out and see if that might make things a little bit better because usually the zoom is not triggered if I don't zoom in. But, you know, I'm going to take it one step further, and I can lock that zoom, which I just did. And so um, it shouldn't go out of focus again, hopefully. But thank you for pointing that out to me. All right, time to get back on my train of thought. So people misuse this chapter. So as you, if you're looking at somebody preach on this topic, you're looking at your own commentaries, Joe Schmo down the street corners you and says, I have a really interesting interpretation of Matthew 24 to give you. These are sort of the issues you want to keep in mind and how do they handle it, right? These are sort of like, as I look and evaluate commentaries and positions, I want to see how they're handling these issues and how does this compare to other people? And does this even make sense, right? 
Um, if they can't tell you the flow of Matthew 24, and they're just plucking a verse or two out of context, that's a bad way to interpret scripture. I don't even need to be an expert in the Greek or anything else to know that's probably an approach I want to kick to the curb. Okay? So I believe, personally, that, and this is not just my personal opinion, but many commentators will take this position, that really the first 14 verses in Matthew 24, what Rabbi Glenn covered last week, are mostly related to the destruction of the temple. That's a first fulfillment. Now, I don't believe that you can't apply them to the end of days. I do think there is, again, typology going on there. But I think the major focus of the first 14 verses is on the destruction of the temple, the years preceding it in the 60s or so AD, right, as the Sage of Jerusalem happened, culminating with its destruction. Um, and these can also be linked to today as well, some of the events we're going to be looking at in the, in the next part of the chapter as well. So we're going to pick up with all that prelude, basically, we're going to pick up in verse 15. Verse 15 tells us, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then we have a parenthetical statement, let the reader understand, I think this also appears in Mark's gospel as well, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is the abomination of desolation? Well, the abomination of desolation refers to, or the abomination that causes desolation, uh, really refers to a first fulfillment is with Antiochus when he offered sacrifices to his own self, right? He created a statue that looked like Zeus, but put his head on it, put it in the temple, basically declaring himself to be God and then defiling God's temple by offering sacrifices and forcing people, right, to offer sacrifices to the statue. That is, doesn't get much more abomination-y than that, right? Than going into the, the holy place of God's temple, the center of worship on earth for him, erecting yourself up a statue, declaring yourself God, and then profaning that temple. Um, it's described in this way in Maccabees. But we also see a reference to this in Daniel 11.31. Right, and when we went through the gospel, uh, excuse me, gospel of Daniel, the book of Daniel, we talked about this and how it related to Hanukkah. But there also was in Daniel sort of a future uh, view in view here, right? Uh, another fulfillment that this sort of thing was about to take place again in the future, right? Um, so Daniel's predict, excuse me. So Daniel's predicting the abomination of desolation that's happening during the time of Hanukkah. But even after that, there seems to be like this is like a pattern that is going to maybe repeat itself. Right? So it refers to Antiochus. But we also have this, so again, you know, the writing of Matthew, right? They're looking back at Daniel. They're looking back at Hanukkah, right? So why do we have this parenthetical statement, let the reader understand? The point is, is that Matthew is drawing attention again through the Holy Spirit that this isn't just about history, right? His audience, his Jewish audience, would understand exactly what he was talking about as it related to Antiochus. But he's actually also talking about here something else. Now, here's where our debates come. Was Matthew's gospel written before the destruction of the Second Temple? Or was it written uh, after? Depends on who you ask. That's a whole other debate. Again, we're in eschatology here, not the entire book. We could have a whole discussion on that. 
But the point is, if you believe that Matthew was written after the destruction of the temple, then we can see it's much easier to make the case, at least historically, without having to point to those pesky things like prophecy, to say that he clearly has in view here the later destruction of the temple, right? The second temple being destroyed, um, that it also was an abomination to the Lord. The place was defiled and it was destroyed. Um, if you believe that Matthew's gospel was written before the destruction of the second temple, then you're just, he's again just looking at these events, but looking forward to what's about to happen. Does that make sense? You guys following me here? Okay. I'm getting, the time is a complicated thing here in Matthew 24, so I'm trying to parse this out correctly here. But the point I'm trying to draw you to here is let the reader understand means that there's some sort of hidden or not just plain meaning, meaning going on here in this text. And we're not talking about Bible codes. We're saying that there's prophecy going on here. And this is part of the language of Matthew to clue us into this fact. So the sign for those who are alive in the last days will be when in some way the events of Hanukkah repeat themselves. So again, what's sort of the broad strokes of Hanukkah? Somebody declares themselves God in the Lord's temple and the temple itself is defiled. Now this is done in a clear way that the reader can understand how this prophecy applies, right? This isn't some sort of very subtle, mysterious thing that you really have to be a huge expert in Scripture to understand. No, if you're familiar with this prophecy here in Matthew and what it's referring to in Jewish history, right, a basic 10-minute education on it, you should be able to identify when this is happening again is sort of the implication here. So it will be done in a very clear way so that those who have read these words can understand it's taking place. Now, as I've alluded to, I believe that this verse has a double fulfillment, right? He wants the reader to understand what's about to take place really within that generation. We're going to talk more about that as we go deeper into Matthew 24. But also there's an even second fulfillment or greater fulfillment going to be happening in the far future. So obviously the far future one we believe has not taken place yet. But what happened during the lifetime of the believers after the resurrection of the Messiah that would fit this? So people have different arguments, different scholars. Some point out Gaius, uh, Emperor Gaius, wanted to erect a statue of himself in about 40 AD in the temple, but it never took place. He was assassinated before that could occur. Most likely, though, the first fulfillment of this prophecy, right, so going forward from um, the time of Hanukkah, right, you know, not looking at Hanukkah, but the next fulfillment of this prophecy is when the temple was defiled, the zealots, those who wanted the Romans to be overthrown, uh, we read in Josephus's history books, like Josephus is really important to really understand what was happening uh, after the time of the Messiah, right, in these, in these years and this stuff, in Josephus's wars. And so Josephus records that the zealots took over the temple and defiled it. Then the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem. People starved. It was horrible. And eventually the temple itself was destroyed. And Josephus, in his books, actually identifies this as an abomination that causes desolation. Now, Josephus, I do not believe, was a believer in the Lord, although some people will debate that. 
I'm going to take a very conservative approach and say that Josephus was not a believer. However, Josephus was a student of history, specifically Jewish history. He was familiar with 1st and 2nd Maccabees. He was familiar with this pattern happening. And so I don't believe he's citing the words of Matthew, but I do believe he is saying the words of Daniel that he sees being fulfilled in what was going on at this time. Does that make sense? Okay. This also makes sense and fits the sort of time period best because the siege of Jerusalem took a long period of time to happen. And D.A. Carson notes that there is good tradition that followers of Yeshua abandoned the city halfway through the siege by the Romans in 68 AD. And so the zealots defile the temple. They're launching their rebellion right against the Romans. The Romans move in to squash this. They, lead, they lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, but it takes place over a period of, I believe, three years. And by halfway through it, all the believers are basically out of the city, which we'll see will fit sort of the typology in Matthew 24. So Ken is asking, does the abomination of desolation have a three or fourfold fulfillment? Well, if we count the first one as Antiochus Epiphanes, that's one, the destruction of the second temple, two, and then a third fulfillment in the time of Revelation, that would be three fulfillments of this. Two fulfillments from Matthew going forward, right? And so specifically, Matthew is looking at it from what's happening in his generation, what's going to, like Messiah through Matthew, excuse me, is talking about what's going to happen in that generation, then a greater fulfillment later. You guys with me so far? Question? Antiochus, you argued before. Right, so, I, so the argument's made for Gaius, but... You, you know, a lot of people plan to do a lot of things, right? Unless it actually happens, I don't consider, you know, I could, somebody could think right now about putting a statue somewhere. Um, Gaius, I mean, if he wasn't assassinated, it could have potentially have been four, or that could have been it. But he was, and it never was done, right? You know, people make a lot of plans to do a lot of things, um, a lot of sinful things, you know, but uh, it doesn't always turn out the way they expect it to. Now, was the Lord's hand in his assassination because of that? We don't have scripture for that, but it does fit a pattern in history of the Lord putting down rulers who try to hurt uh, his people and defile what is considered holy to him, right? So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily rule, rule it out, but we don't have scripture to say so, so we're not going to say so. Joe. Right. Well, when it comes to debating when the gospel of Matthew was written. Right. So before 70 AD, it has a mark of intensity. After 70 AD, it has a Yeah, depending on how you read the Gospel of Matthew. So if you believe the Gospel of Matthew was written after uh, 70 AD, then that you could say that, that informs you know, Matthew through the Holy Spirit how he compiled this Gospel, right? Um, again, you know, it depending on how you interpret prophecy, right, some of it bolsters certain arguments, it doesn't bolster others. Honestly, I think it's sort of, that's an interesting, but it's not the major issue going on here. Um, and it's very easy to get, and I got bogged down. I'll just tell you straight up. You get really bogged down in the minor stuff going on here. I went in some deep, deep rabbit trails that um, 
if I were just to start going off on it, you guys, your head would be rolling back when we get through about two verses. Ken asked, do you think there was a biblical fulfillment of the abomination during the Dark Ages? I wouldn't necessarily say so, but as we're going to see the typology here of what Messiah Yeshua is describing here in this gospel, we kind of see this pattern repeating over and over again in human history. Um, do I believe it's a direct fulfillment? No, but as our esteemed Rabbi Lauren always likes to say, things go with things. So let's move on, though. But excellent questions. So what are so we have this uh, we have this prophecy taking place. So now, as we look at verse 17, 18, 19, and 20, we're going to see what it's going to be like in those days. Messiah Yeshua kind of gives us some details. Let the one who is in, who is on the housetop, uh, excuse me, housetop, not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So part of the argument for why this definitely at least uh, applies to the time of the generation after Messiah Yeshua, is it seems to imply in these verses that uh, Sabbath laws are in effect, right? That travel would be harder on the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to ride horseback on the Sabbath, right? It'd be harder to get out of town during a Sabbath time when everything is shut down. Um, obviously, we don't, you know, in our country and even in Israel today, uh, the Sabbath laws are not in effect in that way. Um, it can still be kind of difficult, but it's... Um, you know, it's not as difficult. So it seems like in the winter travel in Israel is very hard. So it seems like he really is referring here to a first fulfillment in the generation that is living there right now, that these things are going to be happening very soon. I left my water in the office. Could somebody, like, just go in there and grab it for me? I appreciate it. It's the one thing I forgot to grab as I was scrambling tonight, and I know I'm going to need it. Uh, we're doing okay on time. We are, we are doing okay on time. <laughs> Um, but so, um, again, these things seem to really relate to the Jewish war recorded by Josephus and others. Now, according to Craig Keener's commentary on Matthew, houses in Jerusalem had flat rooftops, and during hot days, people would hang out there. It was much cooler, right? There was more likely to have a cross breeze. It probably smelled a little nicer, too. But people hung out on the rooftops, and they had outside staircases, so you could go up to the roof of a house or go down from it without actually having to enter into it. So this shows that Messiah Yeshua's words make a lot of sense here, that when you see these things happening, he's saying, leave so quickly. Don't go into your house and start packing your suitcases and getting all your favorite things together. He says, when you see this happening, get out of Dodge. Literally, if you're on your rooftops, take the quickest exit out of your house. Like there's a fire burning, right? You don't, you don't milly around, right? We have fire escapes for these sorts of situations, take the best escape there and get out of Dodge, which shows you how severe it is. Now, the reference to the one who was in the field not turn uh, back to take his cloak, this refers to, uh, we see this elsewhere in Scripture, but people would wear outer cloaks, right? And so the custom was when you're in a hot day, you would, just like we would do today, right, maybe you're wearing a couple layers, right? You would take off your sweatshirt or a longer sleeve shirt to put, you know, if you had a shorter uh, sleeve shirt, um, you should, you know, you would take that off, set it aside somewhere, right, and do your work. 
in Messiah Yeshua's day, that was sort of the purpose of, oh, no cup in there? It's okay. Don't worry. Then did I put it over here and forget about it? Hi, I did. Sorry for sending you on a wild goose chase there, Michael. Hopefully I did not ruin the camera totally by doing this. Let me just double check it. Okay, we're still in focus. Good. Uh, Rabbi Glenn says we actually should pray even now for those who have to flee tonight, have to do so in winter or in a Shabbat. And I agree with that, that we should, we should you know, regardless of whether Sabbath laws are in effect or not, the point is, is these are going to be terrible days. We need to be praying for these people who are going to experience it. It's, it's a proper thing to pray for, to experience deliverance. Um, so that's the reference here to a cloak. Obviously, a woman who is pregnant or nursing infants, doesn't matter what time period you live in, right? Taking care of infants is difficult. Corralling small children to do anything, especially in a crisis, is even more difficult. If you've ever had to, uh, you know, remember dealing with um, fire drills or things like that when you were a kid, or if you have kids, right? If you've ever been in an emergency situation, it's difficult, especially poor defenseless children who are nursing, who literally cannot take care of themselves. So the point here is, when you hear this happening, when you really see these things happening, get out of Dodge. Don't gawk. Don't wait around. Don't call your friends and say, hey, isn't this really interesting? What's going on? Messiah Yeshua is saying, get out of Dodge. This is serious. This is urgent. Flee in haste. We continue on. Any questions on that section so far? We continue on then. Verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And, in the, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, these, those days will be cut short. Now the use of the word then here can refer to a change of time which is what Carson and others will say is the best way to understand this. For then, there's a movement of time going on here. Uh, but these words could also apply again to the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, part of that siege, Josephus records, was the cannibalization of children. Mothers were eating their infants. That's a pretty great tribulation. That's pretty horrible. But the point here in these verses is that even in the worst of circumstances, the Lord's mercy is shown. Right? We see this in Jeremiah right, as well. Again, we see this is why I would say you know, we could go with more than even four, perhaps, fulfillments in the sense of there's a pattern repeating here. Judgment comes right, on God's people, but God still preserves his people. There's still mercy in the midst of judgment. And that's what's going on here. If God didn't show any mercy, everybody would have been completely destroyed, is what Messiah Yeshua is saying here. And so for the sake of those who are the Lord's people, a remnant, the Lord chooses to show mercy. And this remnant principle, right, is something we see over and over again in Scripture, particularly when horrible national events are taking place in Israel and elsewhere, right? God still preserves his people, right? When the big situations hit in Jewish history, including this one, God's remnant is still preserved in his mercy and through his choosing. So what else will categorize these days? 
We continue on with verses 23 through 28, which I'll take as one section here. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is, your Bible will say, Christ the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. So we have this repetition, right? In the beginning of Matthew 24, Rabbi Glenn talked about this last week, right? The idea of false teachers and false messiahs. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise. Notice the word here is will, not may or might, but will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. If possible, even the elect. Let's just pause there and, and take that here. We're going we're to sermon here for a moment. Um, this is like a Bible fact you should know, every believer should know. It doesn't matter if right now somebody raises somebody from the dead, calls down fire from heaven, makes an angel appear. Miracles, sign wonders are not necessarily proof that God is working in them. Just because you can quote unquote heal the sick doesn't mean you're anointed by God. Okay, the devil can do a lot of things, and Satan seeks to deceive. And he's the one who's in the midst of this situation of trying to deceive even God's chosen, right? How do you know if somebody's true or not? If they follow the word of God, if their teaching is connected to God's teaching, right? It doesn't contradict it. If somebody gets into a pulpit and says there's actually more than one Messiah, or Yeshua is not just uh, fully God and fully man, but he's really just fully divine, or God doesn't exist, and we're going to become gods, whatever kookamani thing they come up with, and then they immediately heal 10 people, guess what? They've contradicted scripture, they've contradicted prophecy, right? They're not God's anointed. You don't listen to them. Yes, Ken, I would agree with that. A prophecy of 70 AD or connected to the siege of Jerusalem and the last days. And they will seek to lead everybody astray they can. And he says, see, verse 25, I have told you beforehand. <laughs> I feel like Messiah Yeshua is saying here, don't tell me you're going to get caught unawares. I told you this is going to take place, right? Sort of like with kids, right? Well, you never told me the fire was hot. I told, you know, you never told me that was going to hurt me when you literally told them five minutes before and they didn't listen to you and they did it anyways. Nobody could say to Messiah Yeshua, Messiah, we had no idea that false messiahs were to come. We had no idea somebody was going to claim to be you and wasn't you. Which, by the way, happened immediately after uh, the death of Messiah Yeshua and his resurrection and also was occurring before his coming. That whole time period was filled with false messiahs. One of our professors in seminary for Rabbi Glenn and myself, Dr. Gene Mayhew, has a whole book on messianic candidates all through the ages, starting from like the beginning of time all the way to modern times. Uh, but many of them are uh, focused around, you know, one or 200 years before and after the uh, birth, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. And if they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. So what he's saying is whether they say that he's in the city or outside the city, don't believe it. In other words, it doesn't matter where they tell you I am. That's not me. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, right, a reference sort of to the whole world, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then we have this interesting phrase, like a proverb here, wherever the corpse is, 
There the vultures will gather. So once again, we see that there will be those who try to deceive believers with a false messiah. Now, I'm going to tackle that last verse kind of first here before we kind of back our way into some other stuff. Um, So verse 28 is kind of a weird saying. It's just a weird proverb from the time of Messiah, most likely. Um, And vulture here is a correct translation. I think the KJV and others might have eagle there. And so some people play a lot of games with the eagle because they use that to connect, rightly so, to the Roman standard, which was the eagle. And so they see eagle as connected to the Romans and see this as sort of some sort of prophecy fulfillment and so on and so forth. But it really should be vulture, which again uh, makes sense because as we know, vultures are connected to corpses. Eagles uh, do not, are not carrying creatures. They're not like vultures where they uh, you know, eat dead corpses in that way, right? They hunt their prey. Um, and this might also be connected to uh, Job 39, uh, 30. Um, uh, Craig Keener uh, points that out. Um, there's also might be some reference here to Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20, which suggests that Messiah Yeshua returns for the final battle, which we see connected to Revelations, uh, Revelation excuse me, uh, 19, uh, 11 through 21. Uh, but so notice that the coming of the Messiah, though, is described in such a way that it isn't secret, right? As the east is from the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. And so a lot of times when you're dealing with bad interpretations of this chapter and end times, they usually involve secret stuff with the return of the Messiah, right? False messiahs will say, you know, yes, I know this is what Revelation said was going to happen, but I've secretly returned, and I'm in, you know, Topeka, Kansas right now. Come out and see me, right? And we sort of laugh at that. But a lot of people will say, well, you know, how come, you know, my version, you know, they'll have their own kind of personal version of eschatology, and you'll go, well, how come it doesn't seem to line up with the events you know, the clear events that are laid out in here in Matthew 24 and elsewhere, they go, well, you got to understand some of these things are secretly taking place now, right? Or they're happening in the spiritual realm. You know, he's returned already, some people would say, right? But he returned in the spiritual realm, and you have to be in tune in some way to understand it. Messiah Yeshua is tackling all those theories at once here by saying, it's clear, it's obvious. Now, what this sign will be, we're going to talk about some of these signs here in a few minutes, hopefully. Um, We can speculate, but in those days, if you are familiar with these words, you will know it when you see it, right? Um, Just like if you were familiar with the words of Isaiah 53 and elsewhere, and you were a person living at the time of Yeshua, if you really understood prophecy, right, you could understand and see these things and apply them, right? If you're willing to move away from your own personal theology, and try to actually understand what God's word has to say. So there's no secret of coming in the wilderness, which false prophets could easily fabricate, uh, but there is a revelation and glory that the whole world must see. So uh, Keener also points out this may have been helpful in confronting those who already at an earlier date felt that Messiah Yeshua returned in some non-physical sense. Uh, so Keener in particular believes that this, uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written after 70 AD, so he's thinking people are already waiting around for the Messiah and might be upset by it. And so got, uh, you know, the Gospel of Matthew might be helping them uh, to sort of have patience and also not be deceived by uh, those who were saying that he had come back in some non-physical way already. 
Um, I think there's some truth to that. Not that maybe it was written after 70 AD, but the idea that these words were written by the Messiah because he anticipated, because he is the Messiah, that those there would be people who would say he's returned in some non-physical way. And so he's sort of squashing these things, right? Let the reader understand. Don't tell me you didn't understand these things, right? He's sort of dealing with all these issues in a preventative way. Any questions so far? Doing okay on time. All right, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So uh, Carson points out that immediately here ties the tribulation of those days to the unidentified final tribulation a tribulation that may follow it by only a few years, or on a more modern reading can only be identified as the final one by the fact that the second coming concludes it. So the point is, is and we're going to talk about this here, is clearly this sort of immediately after the tribulation, right, we're moving to a time period that we now understand as clearly having to take place sometime in the future, but, so this is where things get a little confusing, if you read... And this is, I know this is where I lean, is that the Gospel of Matthew was written before 70 AD, right? This is how people in Messiah's time could assume that maybe Messiah Yeshua was coming back in only a few years, right? Because the temple might not have been destroyed yet, right? These things could still have taken place, right? We have the benefit of history looking back, right? And that's the thing is, as we are very well aware, looking forward in history and applying prophecy can be is way more difficult than looking back in hindsight, right? As the saying goes, you know, hindsight is always 2020. It's much easier to interpret prophecy after the fact because we have the facts and then you just have to match your puzzle pieces together, right? We know exactly how these things happened. So what do we have going on here? We have a tribulation taking place. Immediately after tribulation of those days, the sky will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, referring again to the stars. This definitely fits what Messiah Yeshua was talking about from the east to the west, right? Um, you know, some dude in Topeka, Kansas can't make this happen, right? Um, you know, some guy claiming to be a false Messiah will not be able to do all these signs and wonders in this way. Clearly, if you are alive at this time when these things happen and you see the heavens, go this way, you know, people on earth will give a rational reason why this is happening that really won't fit the data, just as they try to give a rational reason in their own minds why Messiah Yeshua was able to perform miracles, right, but still not be the Messiah, right? He's of Satan, and Messiah Yeshua will point out how absurd of an idea that is, right? And again and again in his ministry, he says, you know, your, your arguments against this are, are just kind of stupid, right? These are silly. These, they're not, you know, based in even logic or reason. You're just trying to fit the data because you don't want to admit the truth. When you hear, you know, Peter prophesying in different, you know, speaking in different tongues, people want to see him as drunk. And Peter goes, 
You know, that, that makes no sense. Okay, something else is happening here. Something else is also happening here. Um, so, clearly, these will be a sign of these birth pangs of the things to come, right? It's still the begin it's still not the end. We're moving closer and closer to the end, which is the second coming of the Messiah, right? So these events take place. These events take place. A fulfillment of this prophecy, a fulfillment of this prophecy. Now the heavens are changing. And notice that there are different responses to this, depending on where you are in your life, depending on who you're aligned with. For those who are the elect, it's great. For those who know the Messiah, who have placed their trust in him, things are great. But we see here that this is not good news for everybody, right? The people of earth will mourn and be afraid, right, when they see this sign. So what is this sign? Um, again, this is where we have to be kind of speculative. We know there will be a sign. We know it will be a clear sign for those who are living at that time. But what the exact nature of that sign is, we can only make some educated guesses. So some see this as the coming of the Messiah himself, and depending on how you view the rapture and where that takes place, that's going to start inserting itself here into this. So when you're bringing to the table as you read this text, um, so when Messiah Yeshua bodily appears again on earth. Um, others say that it might be the resurrection of believers or when we are caught with the Lord in the air. So that is the sign. Um, but I lean again towards Carson and others' views that this will be some sort of sign in the heavens that clearly shows the Messiah is about to return. And so the argument they make, which I find compelling, is that the use of sign along with trumpet in this passage can have the sense of a banner being displayed. So in some powerful way, the banner of the Lord will display in the heavens, declaring Yeshua's kingship and power as the Mashiach, as the anointed king. And they point to language in passages like Isaiah 11, 12, 18, 3, 27, 13, 49, 22, and Jeremiah 4, 21. So there's a term used as an ensign, E-N-S-I-G-N, like a banner or a symbol, right? Like as a, a, an ensign would be like if I was going into the ancient world into battle, I would have like a, a, a banner, right, with the symbol of my house or my crest on it that would declare that who this army belongs to, right? It would be a sign that I'm Constantine or I'm an emperor or something, right? And so the argument that's made here is that this sign the Lord of armies before he returns, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Messiah Yeshua, the anointed king, his banner will uh, appear in the heavens in some way. How exactly that looks, your guess is as good as mine. You know, we can make some educated guesses and there's, I'm sure, entire books related to this. I, I like to only major in the stuff we can be really sure about. Those are the details I like to emphasize. So what should you take away from this practically here is that there will be a sign in my opinion and the opinion of others, that this is a sign, and then the sort of the gathering of believers then takes place. So then the Lord will save and gather his people, and so this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 14.5 and elsewhere. And so at this point, the Lord will gather all believers on the earth. Now, whether this gathering happens before, during, or after the tribulation is, of course, the big debate. I'm going to sidestep that all. We'll save that for when we get to Revelation. Um, 
you know, if you believe in a dispensational um, pre-tribulation, uh, pre-millennial rapture, it does make it sort of difficult to understand this text um, and not apply it to all believers. You have to say that maybe like those who are mourning are just the Jewish people. And so some people see that as a weak argument for that. Um, but again, the issue is much more complex than that. And in the sake of time, I'm just going to sidestep that. Maybe Rabbi Glenn wants to cover that next week, but we'll get to plenty of this stuff when we get to Revelation. So the final section, which I think we have enough time to talk about, and if I don't finish it totally, I know Rabbi Glenn will come back to it, is we move now to this lesson of the fig tree, verses 32 through 35. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, the ESV and NESV, along with other translations, have he is near versus it is near in verse 33. Um, so there's a lot of debate of what is being referred to. So if it's it, it's referring to the rapture. Or if it's he, obviously he is a person, he here would be Messiah Yeshua. So this is referring to the second coming of the Messiah. Or maybe it's both. You know, both things are in view here, both the rapture and his coming. So again, how do you understand the sequence of events? How are these things taking place? Here's our big debates. Now, regardless of which position you take, what is clear is that this parable, the point of the parable, is telling us once again that we as believers cannot be caught unawares. Right? This is the major theme of Matthew 24. The point of Messiah Yeshua telling us these things is so that we don't get caught up in some stupid theology or get caught unawares, or are ignorant of his return, and are ignorant of these important things. That's why he doesn't give it to us in every exact detail, but we get the broad strokes. We get what we need to know so that we don't get caught unawares. Right? We, get, we are told to flee if we are in Jerusalem in this time. Right? That's an important fact. What the sign is, is really nice but doesn't affect my life with the way of getting caught during the siege of Jerusalem when it's being surrounded by Romans, when I'm going to eventually have to cannibalize my children if I stay there. One's a little bit more important than the other, right, practically speaking. So when we see all this destruction and suffering and the signs in heaven, it is a clear sign that the return of the Lord is coming very soon which will then be followed by a summer of blessing. So he uses you know, nature analogy right here. Summer is a time of flourishing, which will happen after his return. Now, verse 34. The identity of this generation, as I say as a broken record, guess what? Has many interpretations. Some say it's the Jewish people alive during the time of Messiah's return. Some say it's the generation of Jesus' disciples alive when he spoke who will witness the terrible events, uh, you know, at 70 AD and elsewhere. Uh, many say it refers to unbelievers who fought against Messiah's earthly ministry and will also fight against him during the last days. This is summarized, I believe, from Keener here. 
I believe it was mostly the first fulfillment of this is that generation that is there right now hearing these words, right? This generation will not pass away means that there's a fulfillment of this prophecy, you know, during their lifetime, which I believe, again, most likely fits the desolation of the, the sorry, the desecration of the temple and then its subsequent destruction in 70 AD. But also, clearly, there has to be some sort of future fulfillment because the stars in heaven, the banners, there was not an ingathering of people, right? And I also don't believe that Messiah Yeshua was ignorant of his own return. Now, again, people go to the, we're not getting there tonight, right? That nobody knows the day or the hour. So maybe Messiah Yeshua on earth was deluded and because he was still fully human, you know, he was human. He just didn't know these things and was saying, mm, no, no. What best fits the data is a fulfillment during their lifetime and a later fulfillment, right? That this generation is referring specifically to that generation that is his audience right now as he speaks these words and those who are reading it. So Carson states that, I tell you the truth, emphasizes the importance of what it introduces. This generation can only, with the greatest of difficulties, be made to mean anything other than the generation living when Yeshua spoke. And so even if you want to make a semantics argument, Carson says, it says generation, right, can have a larger semantic range. Maybe he's talking about multiple generations. To make this generation, though, because there is this in front of it, right, there's a, there's a specific specificity, right, going on here, refer to all believers in every age or the generation of believers alive when these events start to happen is highly artificial, is what Carson said, which is just a nice, fancy way of saying you're playing fast and loose with the Greek. It just doesn't work. Uh, as my professor, and Rabbi Glenn and I's professor in seminary would say, Professor Kunjiman, our, our hermeneutics and language professor, he had this great line when somebody would say something off the wall in the class as an answer to a question, he would say, I'm not sympathetic to that interpretation. Um, Carson is not sympathetic to that interpretation. I'm definitely not sympathetic to that interpretation. Um, it also doesn't follow that Messiah Yeshua mistakenly thought that the second coming would occur during his hearer's lifetime. He's the Messiah. He knows what's going on. So what his argument is, and this is kind of where I'm going to end things tonight and open up for some questions, and I want to just read this section from uh, his commentary because I think this is the best way to understand it. Um, is he says, if our interpretation of this chapter is right, all that verse 34 demands is that the distress of verses 4 through 28, including Jerusalem's fall, happens within the lifetime of the generation then living. This does not mean that the distress must end within that time, but only that all these things must happen within it. Therefore, verse 34 sets a earliest possible date for the second coming. It cannot happen until the events in verses 4 through 28 take place, all within a generation of AD 30, but there is no end point to this distress other than the second coming itself. And only the Father knows when it will happen in verse 36. So Carson's point here is to say, what we have here is a timetable of the destruction of the temple beginning this and Messiah Yeshua's second coming being the end point of this, right? And it could take place, all these events could take place within that time, right? But this generation has, you know, these events have to in some way take place in that generation and then be later fulfilled elsewhere. So he sees this as like a both and, 
again, he wouldn't use probably that language. You know, he would see these as, you know, there's typology or things going on here. So does, uh, so Nancy asked, does Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 prophesy this event, or is it after the millennium? That is a good question. And I am reluctant to answer it because I don't have that prepared and thought about in front of me. And when, when it comes to prophecy and scripture, I do not like to play fast and loose. I'm just going to quickly reread this, make sure it's what I'm thinking of right. On that day, the week in Jerusalem, um, the land will mourn, each clan by itself right. So I would say that this, the prophecy of Zechariah 12, um, is it after the millennium? It's definitely not after the millennium, right? Because we would understand, I would understand the millennial kingdom literally taking place after Messiah Yeshua returns to earth. But this would take place at some point during, I would say, the tribulation. Where that fits into the timeline, again, is open to many interpretations. Um, but definitely Zechariah 12, 10 through 14 is not being fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. Um, I don't see that as a fulfillment of that but that is going to come later and obviously is connected to what's going on here in Matthew 24. Again, so this is part of the argument for those who talk about the, those who will mourn. Uh, some commentators will connect the mourning in Zechariah 12 to the mourning going on here in Matthew 24. Is that a good connection? I think that's one of those arguments we're only going to know when it actually happens. Um, I, I will freely admit I am not skilled enough in this to uh, give a definitive answer either way. It requires a lot more study. Uh, of comparing those passages in the Greek to really see if these are references going on here. Wow, I can't believe I actually finished and wrapped that up by 7.30. All right, I'm going to open up to some questions. Do you have any questions on what we've talked about tonight? Really specifically, I want to stay in Matthew 24 uh, because that's where I did the bulk of my preparation. Um, and so again, I don't have everything else in front of me to really answer the whole timetable of Revelation uh, right now off the cuff. And I'm not going to do that unless I'm prepared. Because it's too easy to uh, misspeak about this stuff. I'm going to lighten this up. Joe. Okay, good biblical reason. So what, what's a good biblical reason for saying there's two fulfillments here? So part of it is... Sort of like going back to the idea of the second coming of the Messiah, right? Um, when you take the biblical data, right, when you take all these prophecies about the Messiah, you can only really fit them into a couple conclusions, which the rabbis did, right? That maybe there's two Messiahs um, uh, was one of the arguments they would make. Um, but what they didn't conceive of was the idea, or many of them didn't. I don't know if there, there might have been some that maybe conceived of this idea, but it would be very much the minority, um, the idea of the Messiah coming twice. Um, so that was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy in a way that biblical scholars did not expect. But yet we, again, hindsight 2020, right, says, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense because they really do sort of fit two sort of separate visitations or comings of the Messiah, Right, and I see how all these fulfill the first, and then like the whole Leviticus 23 thing, right, where the spring holidays correspond to his first coming and the fall holidays correspond to his second coming. You know, the biblical data and the typology makes perfect sense to us, right, looking at it now. Um, so part of it is trying to fit the data, which is why uh, there's other arguments made here about, you know, how we interpret these prophecies. Um, Keener has a small section on different approaches, um, I think he lists here in Matthew 24 in his commentary like five different ones 
um, including uh, Daryl Box and D.A. Carsons and others. Um, R.T. France sees this uh, totally differently, if you're familiar with his commentaries at all. Um, it would read this whole section very differently than the way I've approached it tonight. Um, so again, it's you, you look at the biblical data and you say, how do, we, how do we interpret this, right? So we have our verses. We know what is prophecy. You know, it comes down to hermeneutically, we would say, right, how do you understand prophecy, right? So it, just to kind of give you a, another small example of, of a different approach, right? If I don't believe that prophecy exists, right, so I'm a critical person of scripture that I believe that there's, you know, all this stuff was written after the fact, right? I, I will never say that there's going to be a second fulfillment because I don't believe Messiah Yeshua is coming back, right? And so then I have to only interpret this within the historical time period that it took place, right? We see this with Revelation, right, where people will interpret Revelation only as relating to Nero and what was going on at that time, which, again, doesn't totally fit you know, it can make some things make sense, but it really doesn't fit the entirety of the biblical data. Um, but that's where my presuppositions, what I come to the text with, is going to inform my reading of it. We see this a lot with in our circles of pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture, right? If you're coming to this text with that already figured out in your mind, now you have to make the biblical data fit your view. Um, and the reality is, is it doesn't neatly fit into any of our theological boxes. Um, nice and perfectly. So um, and that's where the fun stuff is, is all the debates and things like that. Um, any other questions? Yes? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. That's an excellent question. So the question is, is okay, so there's going to be a sign of the return of the Son of Man, but we also know false teachers, as Revelation tells us, right, um, also give us uh, uh, information that false messiahs, right, will, false prophet, right, will perform signs. Um, I think it's really going to come down to that. So part of it, I think, is going to come down to, again, sign, you know, Interpreting whether somebody's there, it's going to be more than just a sign, right? It's, if I'm a false messiah, right, as Revelation, again, we're kind of jumping ahead here. Uh, but as Revelation tells us, right, the false prophet is going to point to the false messiah, right, the antichrist. Um, and so we'll know, So part of it will know it theologically because he's going to be saying and doing things the messiah would not say and do. But even then, I go back to sort of, there's, there is like this pattern, right, of, of Satan's power or man's power, um, performing certain miracles and signs, and then God steps in and performs an even greater sign, right? I think of Moses, you know, uh, he throws his staff, it becomes a serpent, right? The, uh, you know, empowered obviously by Satan, the Pharaoh's uh, men are able to turn their staffs into serpents too. But what happens, right? Uh, God's staff, the snake of that snake swallows the other two snakes, right? He turns the whole Nile River into blood. They could turn a little bowl into blood, Right? We see over and over again that Satan's power is more limited than, um, than God's. And when God steps onto the stage, his power is just overwhelming, right? You, you just, when you see the real thing, when you see the real McCoy, right, you know, you're going to know it. Um, Satan just can't duplicate that. Yes, absolutely. My sheep do know my voice, right? It is true. Um, can I ask about uh, three comings, coming in the holy city with his saints? 
Uh, I'm not prepared to answer that one tonight. Uh, so I, uh, I'm going to say I have to listen to your argument and then think about it and then think about what my position is on that because I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about with what verses and uh, time won't permit me to get into that right now. Uh, any other questions? Otherwise, we're going to wrap things up with some prayer. Uh, thank you all for the very nice comments and for sticking around. I hope this made sense. <laughs> I was That was one of my, my struggles putting this together is there's a lot of things going on here. There's a lot of weeds you can get kind of lost in. Um, this is definitely a chapter of scripture where, you know, having a good Bible commentary from a, a reputable uh, commentator uh, definitely helps um, in sort of parsing this out. Um, and uh, definitely there's way more going on here, even in any of these passages, than one hour would allow us to get into. Um, there's way more. I have I skipped over and summarized tons of different things here tonight. And so if you're somebody who really is interested in this stuff, um, I highly recommend you go deeper in your own studies. With, again, and I want to emphasize this one last time, um, good Bible commentators. Random Jew guy on YouTube, you know, who has some wacky view, who has a thousand, you know, a million followers. No. You know, people with credentials and understanding and who elsewhere in Scripture in areas that you're very familiar with, you agree with them, right? They, they're, off, they're not off the wall in other areas. Hopefully you can trust them in this area as well. And again, just like we want to interact with multiple translations of Scripture in English, you want to interact when you do with commentators. Don't just have one guy like, I just love Ryrie, or I like Spurgeon, or I like Piper, and that's it, and that's the only guy I look at. Uh, no, you want to interact with different people. Uh, that's how good scholarly stuff is done. One last point, and then we're going to close in prayer. Takeaway practical application for us today. Be aware, study these things, right? And pray for not only the Messiah's return, but as Rabbi Glenn said, pray that these things won't happen in a time that is really horrible for people, right? Just you know, pray for people's you know, physical health and, and being able to not have to go through horrible events like this, right? That we may escape and 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 be in a refuge and, and have the minimal amount of suffering possible. Um, I do believe that, you know, there will be suffering in these days. Um, do I exactly agree with Rabbi Glenn's timetable of things? Probably not totally, but I definitely uh, believe that Rabbi Glenn is right when he emphasizes the point when we talk about this over and over again. Don't think that we as believers are going to escape everything bad happening, that the moment the first ouchie happens, the Lord is going to rapture us up and we're going to be totally missing everything, right? Where that works in the timetable is up for debate, and we won't know it until it happens. Um, but Messiah Yeshua taught us these things so that we would be aware, um, not out of a place of fear, but out of a place of hopeful anticipation and prayer and, and just being grounded in God, right? We don't fear monger with this stuff. These things shouldn't make us afraid. They should make us happy that the Messiah is returning, right? The book of Revelation Rabbi Glenn says, that's okay, nobody's perfect, and laughs. Um, but that's right, right, the book of Revelation is to encourage us, right? That's what it says in the beginning of Revelation. This is written to encourage us so we may have hope as we see these times drawing near. So with that all being said, uh, let's pray and we'll close out for tonight. And then Lord willing, Rabbi Glenn will pick up where we left off tonight and may probably want to wind his way back and cover some other stuff as well. But that's up to him and his prerogative. All right, let's pray. Avina Volcano, our Father King, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for prophecy. Thank you that 
I don't have to consult tea leaves or stars or power crystals or aliens or some other wackadoodle thing, Lord, but that you are a God of order, a God of reason. Did you say in Isaiah, come with us reason together, says the Lord, that you give us prophecy. And you may not spell out all the details the way we like, but you give us the important parts. And you tell us how we are to understand these things. And you even tell us what we are to do with these things, Lord. And so I pray that as the word says, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers. That we wouldn't just take these uh, prophecies as interesting intellectual stuff, as just things to talk about and obsess over, but that practically we would apply them to our lives, that we would be on the lookout, we would be uh, in our watchtowers keeping a lookout for these things, sober-minded and encouraging one another all the more as we see these days drawing near. And I pray all these things, B'Shem Yeshua. Amen? All right, thank you everybody, and thank you online, everybody for watching. Um, and yeah, I hope to see you Saturday. I believe we have an Oneg this week as well, so that's always delightful. And uh, Lord willing, I'll be preaching this week on Psalm 46. So please uh, pray for me as I finish preparing that. You guys have a great night.